Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of the Movement as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr. And once again, I'm solo today. Brendan is still wrapped up in preseason football. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll get him back in the dynamic duel. We'll be back in action. But in the meantime, you just have me. So we have another solo cast today. Um, and for episode 20, I'm going to dive into the mailbag. I have a whole bunch of questions or articles or things that have been sent to me over the last few weeks that I wanted to try to take some time to write some um, thoughtful responses to and, and then use the podcast as a form to do that. So some of these have come to me through social media DMs, so you can message me there. Some of those have come through email, coachkevincar at gmail.com if you want to email questions or topics to me directly. Um, and some of these have actually come on the strengthcoach.com forum where Brendan, Michael Boyle, a bunch of strength coaches from around the world, we answer questions every single day on the strengthcoach.com forum, um, ranging from fitness business questions to performance and programming questions, um, very active on there. And some of these I wanted to try to pull out and also answer on the podcast here. And so I have a bunch of random topics to talk about, and I'm just going to kind of rant and go off some of my notes that I answered um, and wrote down on this uh, document in front of me. So kind of running down the topics that I have here today. Um, one question was getting to your first chin up. How do you get over that hurdle? That could be something that can be really difficult. I find, especially for some of our young female clients. So what approach do we take? And do I take personally with my clients to program people to get to that one chin up hurdle? Um, another question I had was specifically around social media and the fitness industry and physical therapy and nutrition, polarizing discussions, um, arguing on the internet, um, and viewing it from different perspectives. And so um, I have uh, some responses on that idea. Another question I received this week was with weight loss clients, specifically uh, programming high-intensity exercise and how that might affect um, the following caloric consumption and feelings of satiety and hungriness um, and how that might make it harder for some of our clients to lose weight if we're programming a lot of really high-intensity work, especially early on. Uh, we dive into a little bit of the research there as far as how we can tackle managing satiety um, and feelings of um, fullness and man balancing that with exercise prescription. And then finally, um, I got a great research study forward to me from Brendan's wife, Jenny Rierick, um, at fit to speak on Instagram. If you do not follow her, I cannot recommend uh, her content enough, but she sent me a really interesting study that looked at the diagnosis uh, rates and misdiagnosis rates of radiologists and diving into that study. How can we learn a thing or two about coaching and diagnosing clients in our own setting? Um, and that's a really, really stu interesting study. So hang on to the end to hear about that. All right. So before we dive into those topics, if you didn't listen to our last episode, episode 19, we sat down and we talked with Eric Chesson, um, brilliant guy, good friend of mine who runs the Autism Fitness um, and works with Inclusive Fitness based here um, in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. Um, we talked all about working with um, the autistic and neurodivergent population in a fitness setting. He's doing some amazing things, both with his autism fitness certification, as well as with the coaches every day working with clients at Inclusive Fitness. And there were some really great takeaways 
about coaching um, with his population that really extend to all populations. Um, but he gives some really good perspectives. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I would really tell you, take a second, go back, listen to episode 19, because there's some really good stuff in there. It's one of my favorite ones that we've done yet. So how do you get to your first chin up? Um, getting to your first chin up can be really daunting. We have a ton of people who come into the gym every single day who cannot do a chin up. And there's a really empowering sense of being able to pull your body weight up over the bar. And I find specifically for our young kids, specifically our young females, it's a really good goal to have. And that extends even to our gen pop clients who are older, um, especially our middle-aged women that come to see us who really want to be able to get their first chin up. And it can be a really challenging task. And I've seen some clients go years without being able to get there. And we had a discussion about this at our staff meeting, and we think it's really inexcusable. We want to make sure that everybody can do that basic movement. I know Dan John says it's one of his survival standards, right? If you were hanging off a cliff or the side of a building, can you pull yourself back up? Um, it's probably not going to be that dramatic in your life. But I think that having that basic upper body pulling strength is really, really important. Now, we want to ensure that the client actually has the overhead mobility to do the exercise in the first place. If they can't get their arms over their head, getting them to do a chin-up is going to be really difficult, right? And so if they don't have at least somewhat full shoulder flexion, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It doesn't have to be this like perfect 180 degrees where their arm is up over their head, but they should be somewhere close because we don't want to be jamming them into end rage repeatedly trying to do a max effort exercise, right? If they can't do a chin-up and one rep is hard, we don't want them, you know, jamming their shoulder end rage repeatedly trying to pull themselves up. Just imagine if we were talking about a back squat, if someone couldn't squat, you know, past, you know, halfway down and we throw up a load on their back and have them jam into end range, you're probably going to run into trouble when you jam a joint into end range repeatedly under load. So just ensure if you're going to have someone start to try to get to that first chin-up, check their overhead flexion first. And what I would do when I do that is I just lay them either on the ground or on a table, like my massage table, have the client lay flat on their back, bend their knees, have their feet flat on the table. So they're in that like hook lying position with their hips flexed and feet flat, knees bent, have them take a big breath in, a big breath out, exhale, bring their ribs down solely just so we get their back flat against the table. So we don't have a huge lumbar arch. That's just going to set a standard positioning so we can actually measure shoulder flexion and not lumbar extension and thoracic extension. Um, and then have them after they do that, lift their arms up over their head bilaterally and see, can they at least get their arm to, you know, 150 degrees, somewhere around their biceps should be at least near their face. Again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but we want to try to get them close so that they can at least get the adequate joint positions to absorb and adapt to stress in that overhead positioning. Once we have been able to get them to do that, we really want to hit the ground running, developing strength in their upper back and their shoulders. Now, one thing we really want to think about here is frequency. Sorry, frequency. My voice cracked. Um, and... The one thing we tend to overthink, right? We always think in fitness about volume and intensity, right? Either increasing the reps 
or increasing the load. And that works really well when there's an external load like dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells to work with. But when it comes to getting your first body weight rep of anything, whether that's a chin-up or a push-up, those are probably the most common examples of body weight exercises that people need to get to the first one rep of. Most people who come to see you can do a body weight squat, um, but most people probably cannot do a great push-up or a great chin-up. And when we're dealing with that, it's very hard to increase in, uh, intensity or volume because you're already at a sub-max body weight. So the only way to make it harder is to uh, push up, either bring yourself closer to the ground if you're on an incline, or to deload yourself if you're doing something like an assisted chin-up. And both of those options can be hard if someone is deconditioned or weak and hasn't done it before. So you want to use frequency as your tool to try to get people over that one rep hump. And so with beginners, I will probably have them do chin-ups multiple times a week. If they're coming two times a week, they're going to do chin-up two times. If they're coming three times a week, maybe they do chin-up two times and some other overhead pulling exercise a third time. Um, because we need to try to really focus on developing this skill. If you're only doing chin-ups once per week and you're trying to get that first rep, it's going to take this person forever to try to develop that skill of doing a chin-up. And so what I would say, number one, make sure you're doing it frequently enough. And this goes for push-ups as well. If you have someone who cannot do a push-up on the ground, my go-to would be to move to an incline push-up variation where they're doing, have their hands on a box, a bench, or ideally a barbell that's placed in a rack and have them do it frequently. If they're at home, have them do the practice at home as well. I would tell someone to do the same thing with chin-ups. When it comes to chin-ups, um, I would use two different tools, and I would probably to train these two uh, variations concurrently. I would have one day of week, I would do some sort of assisted chin-up using something like a super band or a band hanging from the rack or going across the rack and the J-hook, something to help them pull up. Um, or if you're in you know, a big box gym, sometimes they have those assisted chin-up machines where you can kneel on and, and move the pin on the weight rack to help them. Uh, that could also be an option. And then on another day, I would do things like isometrics and eccentrics. Um, so you can overload and do an unassisted variation. And so I would do these two concurrently. And I think that they both can have value in their own context. And, and let me explain why. I think first off, assisted chin-ups, band chin-ups get a bad rap from a lot of coaches on the internet. You'll hear a lot of people say they're useless, they're not very helpful, uh, that people cheat, and all of those things can actually be true um, if they're not coached well. I think that if you just let people bounce up and down in a stability belt, but with a stability band, or I mean a super band rather, up and down in the rack, um, it is not very useful exercise because they're just going to rely on the elasticity of the band get their head and chest up over the bar and they're just going to bounce up and down like some sort of amusement park ride. Um, and it's not going to be a very useful um, exercise and it's going to be quite frankly, a waste of time. And so the two things here, when you're doing assisted chin-ups with a band, or like I said, with maybe one of those machines, one, make sure you're providing an assistance that only allows them to get like three to five reps at the most. Realize that, we need to favor our programming here towards intensity and away from volume. Again, we want to favor intensity rather than volume when we're trying to get to that first rep of anything. It's not that volume's bad. And once the, they can do multiple reps of body weight, we want to start to build some volume. But when we're sub 
one rep with anything, push-ups or chin-ups, favoring frequency and higher intensity is going to get them there quicker. Just imagine if I was trying to build my bench press and then my immediate twin, my identical twin right next to me was also trying to build my bench press. And we could both only bench 100 pounds, but we both want to get to 200 pounds. If I'm bench pressing multiple sets of two at 90 and he's doing three sets of 10 at 50, who's going to build their strength faster? I will, because I'm working at a higher relative intensity. I'm recruiting more motor units, a higher rate coding. I'm working at a higher intensity. I'm more likely to build my one rep max, which is what we're trying to do if we're trying to get to that one rep chin up. Now, my friend bench pressing, my identical twin rather, bench pressing three sets of 10 at 50 pounds, maybe he'll get some hypertrophy, he'll have some sweet looking pecs or arms, but I'm going to get my, I'm going to get that 300, that 200 pound bench press rather quicker. And so we want to think of it that way when we're trying to develop the chin-up. We tend to use stability bands at MBSC, either hanging from the top of the rack that we put around a knee or a foot, or if we don't have enough coaches to be able to pull the band down, we'll put it across the rack in the J-hooks so the athlete can step off a box or a bench, put their feet on the band, and then just grab the bar. So I want to find a band that only allows them to get however many reps I'm programming, whether it's one three or five, keep the reps low and keep the sets higher. So maybe they do three sets, of five, four sets of three, five sets of one, whatever it might be so that they get enough volume at a high intensity rather than doing uh, more reps per set. We're doing more sets uh, with lower reps at a higher intensity. So typically maybe the first week we're doing something like three sets of five, we'll get them acclimated. Then maybe I move to four sets of three, and maybe five sets of three, five sets of two, maybe a whole bunch of singles spread throughout the workout um, with that assisted day where I'm providing band assistance or, like I said, machine assistance if you're at a gym that has one of those uh, machines. You're going to find that people gain strength very quickly, and it's going to force that athlete to have full body tension and really think about what they're doing. If you've ever seen someone do high rep band assisted chin-ups, it doesn't require any tension. They just bounce up and down. I want to see that athlete really struggle to get that chest up to the bar and finish that rep. I don't want to see them being able to bounce up and down without a lot of tension. And it brings me to my next point. Make sure they're getting full range of motion. If they're not getting you know, their chest to the bar, we go so far as to actually call that exercise a sternum chin-up because I want to see that bar get to their sternum. I don't want them to just kind of peek their chin over the top. You see the athlete kind of shrug their shoulders up and like reach their chin up. That's not what I want. I want to see them pull those lats down. I want to see them pull their shoulders back, get their chest up, and then dead hang all the way back down because the two parts that are really hard in a chin-up, especially for a beginner – are the bottom position, right? They can't start well. They shrug the shoulders up. And then that top position because they can't finish. Be a stickler for full range of motion. When we have chin-ups in the program, you'll see myself and the other coaches of MBSC, especially Mike, walking up and down the rack saying, all the way down, all the way up, all the way down. I want to see those athletes dead hang. I don't want to see any flexion left in those elbows because if we demand full range of motion, especially early on, we're going to build really strong rhomboid scapular stabilizers in an upper back that's going to build a great foundation for them to get stronger going forwards. So one day a week, 
assisted chin-up variations go a really long way, but you can't let them bounce. You have to keep intensity high, and you need to use a full range of motion. If you keep the intensity high, you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck. Now, on the second day, because I said I would want to program multiple times per week, start by using things like isometrics and eccentrics. Okay, we know that we can be stronger both isometrically and eccentrically than we can be concentrically, right? Um, working without a change in muscle length, like an isometric, or res uh, resisting force resistance and lengthening in an eccentric, we're able to produce more force. And so use that to our advantage. We can overload the nervous system and the muscles with the athlete without them even having to be able to do a concentric rep. And so what we'll do often is get an athlete so they can pull, get at the good start position. Make sure they're not jumping up into a shrug, have them climb up the rack. Okay. Pull the bar tight to their chest, take their feet off the J hooks, and then go down slowly take about five to six seconds. I like to say six to seven, because if I say that, then that means I'll get five seconds out of the athlete. They're going to always go faster than you tell them to. So I'll say, hey, do a seven-second eccentric. I'll get a five-second eccentric. Have them go down as slow as they can, put their feet back on the box or the bench, climb back up, hold the top position, go down slowly. Start very low volume with these as well. If you start with too high a volume, you're going to get a lot of soreness. In fact, I would actually say start with isometrics first and then go to eccentrics. Typically, isometrics aren't going to cause very much soreness at all because there's no change in muscle length. The lengthening associated with the eccentric is what typically causes soreness. Um, and I'll tell you a story. I remember we had an intern once coaching these, and we had he um, incorrectly had this athlete do a whole bunch of eccentric only chin-ups and this was a brand new athlete so he had only been here maybe for one or two times and then he, he i mean he did all the reps but then when he came back with his mother uh like two days later the kid's arms were literally stuck to almost 90 degrees and the parents said his arms are so sore he can't really extend them um realize that if you do too much eccentric focus work people are going to be sore especially with beginners which in this case if it's somebody trying to get their first chin up is likely that they're going to have a fairly low training age so i would say maybe for the first phase with these athletes start with an isometric variation um, have them go up to the top like we said climb up hold the top position say hey i want you to hold for 10 seconds and you'll be surprised. A lot of people can probably hold up there. If they can't do 10, have them do seven. Have them do five. Cut the length down. Three 10-second holds. Four 10-second holds. Five 10-second holds. Build the volume. They'll start to understand the top positioning that we talked about that can be really hard for people to get into. They're going to start to develop those upper back muscles. They're going to develop their lats and understand how to depress and pull their lats down in that top position and start to get strong. It's going to help them get a stronger finish position on those assisted days that we just talked about. Then maybe move to eccentrics. Again, maybe you just do three sets of two five-second eccentrics. So they get uh, six total reps of, you know, like I said, seven. They'll probably give you five. Um, and then add a, add a rep each week and start to build strength that way. You're going to find if you do a few phases, maybe eight weeks, uh, it might not even take that long to where you're doing high-intensity uh, assisted variations and isometric and eccentric variations, you're going to get someone to their first chin-up pretty quickly. Now, 
um, realize body composition does matter. If you're working with someone who is very large um, and it has lower relative strength, it's going to be much harder to improve their chin-ups. I've lost a, a little bit of weight recently. I've been trying to tighten up my diet, you know. Uh, I just hit 35. I figured it's probably time to thin out a little bit. Um, and I'll tell you, my chin-ups have gotten much better. I didn't really change how I programmed them for myself, but it's amazing when you lose about 10 pounds how much quicker and powerful you feel pulling yourself up. And so keep that in mind. If you're working with a body composition-related client, um, one of the easiest ways to get them to chin-ups is to help them lose adipose tissue or body fat. Um, and they're going to end up, that exercise is going to be a lot easier, right? Um, also from an assistance work, I love doing things like X pull downs on a Kaiser pull down variations. It'd be a way to get some extra volume, right? We're not going to be pursuing volume yet. Um, if we're trying to get that first chin up, but you can start to pursue some volume doing X pull downs or pull down variations. If you still want to get some volume and upper body pulling, and it is going to help them get stronger. All right. So remember frequency and high intensity. Once they can get that single rep, maybe they can only do one. I really like to say, hey, every other set, you're going to go up and do one chin-up. So maybe they have a set of goblet squats, they go do one chin-up. Then they go do a set of push-ups. Then they go up and do one chin-up. Then they go do a front plank. Then they do one chin-up. And we do that throughout the day and just try to add reps throughout the program, right? And then as the programs go by, add another rep, add another rep. And tell them, get a chin-up bar at home. When you walk through the doorway, do a chin-up. After a while, once they can get to like five reps, then you can really start to pursue some volume. Then you can start to push it from there. But I would say think about frequency and high intensity first, and then we can go and pursue uh, different variations from there. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, – we're going to stay on the idea of body composition because we did just talk about that um, in the chin-ups. Um, and this is another question similar to the chin-up question that I had in the strengthcoach.com forum. I had a coach ask about a weight loss client, a newer weight loss client that he's been working with. Um, and he said that essentially they've been doing a lot of high intensity work, right? High intensity interval training is especially popular with weight loss clients because you'll see one, if you're tracking calories or looking at heart rate, you're going to see a high amount of calorie burn high amount of inefficiency as far as the amount of fat that you burn, not just in the workout, but then proceeding the rest of the day because you see an elevated metabolic rate. But the problem that the coach touched on um, was that the, the client, one, hasn't really been losing weight and is commenting on how the high-intensity work that they have been doing um, is affecting their feelings of uh, satiety. They're not feeling very full. In fact, they're feeling very hungry. Um, and they find themselves overeating and snacking more as a result of the high-intensity exercise. And this is a common problem that we see, and, and most research tends to reflect to this, that our body is really, really good at adjusting caloric, uh, caloric consumption in response to uh, caloric burn, um, whether that's based on our non-exercise physical activity, how much we move around, or our intentional um, exercise activity, we tend to compensate naturally to try to maintain homeostasis in our body weight. And that happens at all weights, whether we're someone who's very heavy or very light, um, 
There is also a lot of variation in our responses to exercise and our metabolic rate, but generally you'll see people naturally compensate um, by either decreasing their non-exercise physical activity in response to exercise. So if you do a lot of exercise and then they track people throughout the day, you tend to move less um, than if you didn't exercise, right? You tend to sit on the couch more, you tend to be more tired. We see that a lot. Also, we tend to see people just increase the amount that they eat. Um, and it's because evolutionarily, weight loss has never really been an issue. This is a modern uh, problem that we've run into as we have a more industrialized and sedentary society. We move less. And so now we have the problem of uh, people being overweight or obese, carrying extra body fat as a response to being less active, right? When you had to work in a farm or a factory all day, food was more scarce. You couldn't just go get a quick energy dense meal at uh, the convenience store or the grocery store. You had to typically make your food, farm your food, work for your food. Um, we tend to uh, didn't have, we didn't see people who were as overweight or carried as much adipose tissue. Um, but now, obviously, this is a modern problem. And so our body evolutionarily wants to maintain uh, body fat wants to maintain our body weight from evolutionarily. We had to keep our body weight, um, for survival. Um, so it's very hard to outrun that instinct or outrun that adaptation that has only really become a problem in the last, you know, hundred years or so, uh, where we have started to really see industrialization and sedentary behavior skyrocket our obesity, uh, problem, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. So, Looking at the research, um, what we tend to see is like exercise itself isn't really a great tool for weight loss alone. It can be helpful, but obviously the old saying, you can't outwork a bad diet. Generally, that's true. Um, and so in feedback to this gentleman who asked the question in the forum, he said, what should I do? Should I scale back the intensity of the exercise? Um, and I think maybe for beginners, that's actually a really good idea. Um, you know, I think typically we could fall prey to the really eager beginner who wants to lose weight, who wants to work really hard and sweat, um, and feel like they're doing something. They really want to have high intensity work early on because they feel like that they're making a change. And in fact, they are, they're probably burning a lot of calories right off the bat. Um, and that's going to make us feel good because we're going to start to maybe see weight come off very quickly or see a high caloric burn in those workouts. However, the slingshot effect is typically that they tend to eat more. So weight loss will slow and there might even be a following weight gain if they're not managing their nutritional intake adequately. And so what I think we want to think about is encouraging slow, progressive exercise. Um, don't go right into doing Tabatas. Don't go right into doing high intensity work or high volume exercise, although that might seem like a quick way to try to lose weight. Start like we do with all of our beginners. We start with two sets for the first week or two for a beginner because that's probably enough. One, it's not going to cause as much soreness. Two, it's going to let them get used to the psychology and responses that come from exercise. They won't have maybe a roaring hunger after that first week. And it's going to maybe allow them to start to adjust their nutrition accordingly um, as opposed to going home and mowing down you know, everything that they see. Um, and then start to encourage non-exercise physical activity. Um, the 
less stressful response that comes from maybe just walking a little bit more, um, doing things around the house, starting to monitor your step count, um, might allow them to better modulate their nutrition um, because they won't be in as, as an extreme caloric deficit. I think that if you have a beginner who comes out the gates really hard, exercising really intensely, and then also says, I'm going to start to really kind of restrict my calories, and you put them in a major caloric deficit of hundreds of calories per day early on, they're going to eventually slingshot back and succumb to that drive for hunger. Whereas if you can start someone moderately, have them do just basic exercise, basic strength training, maybe a little bit of conditioning work at the end, and just start to moderately increase their step count, and then moderately decrease their nutrition intake by tiny bits of a uh, caloric deficit a day, they're going to be more steadily and reliably be able to drop their weight. Um, our body has this idea of the lipostat, um, and this is from Stephen Guinette's book, um, The Hungry Brain, uh, which I would really recommend people to read. I'll put the link in the show notes, and he talks about how the amount of body fat that we have in our body can actually help, is going to play a part in modulating how much we carry, right? So if you're, we say people have a natural set point, there's been a lot of research about the idea of a set point in obesity, where it's very hard for people to break out of their natural body size that they're born with. Um, because your adipose tissue isn't just fat, it's a hormone and it signals to your body if you lose more or gain more. And when you start to lose large amounts of adipose tissue, your body will send out a signal to try to get you to eat more and move less so that you gain it. So realize when we lose weight, we're working against our evolutionary behavior. And so to do that, we can't work in extremes. We wanna take small progressive steps to try to change habits and to try to change metabolically what's happening inside of us. And so I think starting with slow progressive strength training, adding some lean body mass, starting to do some basic cardiovascular work and slowly reducing calories so we're not in a huge caloric deficit makes a really, really big difference. Um, what we don't want to do is come out the gate so hard that we get tired, fatigued, and then succumb to huge amounts of hunger and slingshot the other direction. I've found with my clients who I've had large weight loss successes with, I've had people lose almost 100 pounds. I've seen other coaches in NBSC have people lose almost 200 pounds. Um, I have Ken Whittier did a great presentation um, uh, with one of his clients um, named Marie, who he had as the star of his presentation at the winter seminar a few years ago. And if you go on to um, our CFSC website or MBSC TV, you can actually watch that lecture. And he talks about the approach that they took. And it was really amazing. Like it wasn't some crazy, you know, biggest loser type workouts where he was having her do a, a bunch of high intensity work, but they consistently strength trained three days a week and they slowly changed their caloric intake over the course of years. And to the point where she lost, I think it was around 150 pounds um, over time. Um, but you have to be patient. Fat loss takes time. Um, and if you're going to do it sustainably, it certainly is going to be slower than what you would probably like. So moving on to our next topic, um, I had a great question um, from another strength conditioning coach, a younger strength conditioning coach and physical therapist who asked me for my perspective 
on what seems to be the prevailing problem in the fitness, health, nutrition space today, as far as social media goes. And if you spend any time on things like Instagram or Twitter, um, first off, don't spend too much because you're going to get sucked in. Um, but what you tend to see is large amounts of arguing um, between the two polar ends um, of the industry. And this is true in every industry right now, uh, as social media and the internet makes it much easier to argue. If you look at our current political landscape um, with two polar ends, uh, where it's like two sport teams or two fans of sport teams arguing, in, hurling insults back and forth, um, you tend to see that uh, you see a lot of bad behavior amongst professionals. And that is just as true in, you know, strength conditioning, physical therapy, um, in nutrition as it is in our political spectrum. Um, and they asked, you know, what, how do you deal with this and how do we get past this problem, um, within our industry and what do you do, um, when you might be the target or you might feel like you are caught in between people who might, um, handle themselves, maybe unsavory is the word that I'll use, um, in the social media space. Um, and I don't think this is a problem we can solve. This is a result um, of the internet. The internet naturally changes how we communicate with one another, how you're going to talk with someone who is sitting right in front of you, um, who you might disagree with uh, about a topic, maybe even something as trivial as exercise selection, which is seemingly what a lot of people like to argue about in fitness. Um, how you talk with that individual in front of you is going to be different um, than how you talk with someone who might be on the other side of an app on your phone. And that might not be true for a lot of us, but it is certainly true um, for some of us. Um, and I think the best thing you can do is self-select who you're listening to. The nice part of social media is you don't have to listen to people if you don't want to. Um, but I heard a discussion regarding uh, politics and behavior online that looked at a study by um, these two political scientists named Alexander Bohr um, and Michael Bang Peterson. And I'll put a link to this uh, research study in the show notes. Um, and I'm actually just going to read uh, part of the conclusion, um, because if you just sub out the word politics for coaching or nutrition or fitness or physical therapy, um, you're going to see the same exact behaviors demonstrated um, just in a different context. So I'm going to read this quote directly. So it says, quote, first, the dark guns of social media give more power to trolls and provocateurs, uh, I can't speak, more power to trolls um, while silencing good citizens. Research by the political scientists Alexander Bohr and Michael Bang Peterson found that a small subset of people on social media platforms are highly concerned with gaining status and are willing to use aggression to do so. They admit in their online discussions they often curse and make fun of their opponents in getting blocked by other users or reported for inappropriate con uh, comments. Across eight studies, Bohr and Peterson found that being online did not make more uh, did not make people more aggressive or hostile than normal. Rather, it just allowed a small number of aggressive people to attack a much larger subset of victims. Even a small number of jerks online are able to dominate discussion forums, Born Peterson found, because non-jerks -jerk are easily turned off from online discussions of politics or any topic. Second, the dark guns of social media give more power and voice to the political extremes while reducing the power and voice of the moderate majority. And so what you have to realize 
is that controversial and political extremes or any extremes of opinions in any context are going to get more voice. That is how these social media algorithms are designed. For better or worse, although I don't think we can completely avoid the use of social media, you're probably going to find this podcast via social media. Um, realize that these algorithms are made so that people can act at extremes. That's how they're designed. Um, hence, a lot of the problem in our political landscape and, and how people receive information. And some people um, who probably act this way even off of social media, like they said, it didn't necessarily act make people act worse. It just gave them a platform that rewarded them for doing so. Um, and so what you want to think about is that these people are utilizing this platform for their own gain, whether or not that contributes to the gain of that society or group as a whole. Uh, I don't think we could say that the advent of social media has been very great for our society. If you look back over the last handful of years and how people have behaved and maybe the results of how the, the social media behavior has led. And I would say the same thing is true for the fitness industry. And the irony of it is all of these bad actors, the people who are rude, um, insult one another, um, are offensive um, and participate in things like call outs or insults. They all do so under the guise of saying they're trying to increase, um, you know, the improve the level of uh, scientific efficacy, or they're trying to improve the level of coaching in the field by calling out charlatans or insulting people. And sometimes maybe they are calling truly uh, other bad actors or charlatans out, but most often they're looking for reasons to insult other people rather than educate other people. Um, and in my opinion, that probably is worse for the overall field of our practice um, than, you know, maybe a little misinformation or a little bad science um, or a little bit of um, what what is the thing they like to often say, um, uh, reductionist uh, opinions. Now, there's always place for debate and discussion. I love constructive discussion and debate. And that's why we have things like the strengthcoach.com forum where we moderate bad behavior out. And social media tries to do that, but it also has an algorithm that rewards bad behavior at the end of the day. And so my advice, if you're a young person in this industry, strength conditioning, physical therapy, nutrition, or whatever uh, avenue or profession that you're in, block it out. You don't have to follow and interact with these individuals. If you start reading comments, and you start getting into this, it's going to start to nurture a negative mindset. And you might have the urge to respond or interact or, in fact, take up some of this behavior on your own. But I'll go ahead and tell you, it's very nice when you just shut your phone off and put your app away. Um, do your best every day to use social media as a source of good. Go out there and communicate positively. Think about the education that you can provide um, based on the things that your clients want and the people that you work with every day want. I don't think that the people that come into our gym, we have like 400 people a day that come through our gym. I don't think that they're looking for us to go on the internet to insult people or call people out or tell people why they're frauds or tell people why they're dumb. They want us to provide basic, useful, practical information so that they can better their lives. And other coaches who might learn from you also want the same things. So look at your everyday practice as a practitioner and say, what can I do to better contribute to this field? What can I do to help the coaches around me, help the everyday athletes or general population clients who come to see us and use that time, use that avenue to educate as opposed to use it uh, to argue, to make memes about people, to insult people. Because at the end of the day, 
that behavior that those people are demonstrating is the same antisocial behavior that they probably demonstrated their whole life. Um, and they're using this outlet of social media to express their frustration. And don't let that leach over to your everyday practice and your everyday use. Okay. Um, now, finally, moving on. Um, I want to touch on this amazing uh, study, this really interesting study that Jenny Rerick sent me. And so I love Jenny. Um, she's the best. And she always sends me uh, really, really interesting stuff that pops up that I might be interested in reading. So um, if you're listening to this, Jenny, keep sending things like this to me. Um, this was a really interesting study. And at first I said, I don't understand why this is going to be interesting. Um, but uh, the name of the study specifically is, and again, I'll put this in the show notes for you, is Selection with Variation in Diagnostic Skill, Evidence from Radiologists. Um, and this was done by a group of people in, actually based out of Massachusetts, I believe, um, a group of scientists, uh, researchers that were looking at the diagnostic ability of radiologists, specifically radiologists in diagnosing pneumonia. Um, and you might think, what the hell does this have to do with coaching and fitness? Well, what they said, um, and I'll read this first line in the abstract was, you know, physicians, judges, teachers, and agents in many other settings offer, uh, differ systematically in decisions they make when faced with similar case, uh, similar cases, standard approaches to interpreting and exploiting such differences assume are, they arise only from variation and preference. And so what they mean is that different professionals, for instance, judges, the examples that they use, have the propensity to hand down very different decisions when faced with similar cases. Um, similarly, phys uh, physicians may make different diagnoses when looking at the same exact patient uh, caseload or patient criteria. Um, and very often, um, we don't understand why. Um, and what they wanted to look at in this study was specifically radiologists when looking at um, an x-ray of someone's lungs, um, whether or not they diagnosed them with pneumonia or not, they looked at these all these different radiologists, uh, big caseload of them, um, and they wanted to see their diagnosis rate, how often they diagnose people um, with pneumonia, and then also what was their miss rate? How often were they right and how often were they wrong? Um, and what they found in looking at all of these radiologists, right? So these people would come in, they would give a diagnosis. Um, it would either be confirmed, um, or that person would leave. And if they did have pneumonia because they weren't diagnosed with it, they would eventually come back and have to get treatment. So they would know if they missed the diagnosis, what they found was the radiologists who diagnose more cases of the disease are also the ones who miss the most cases of the disease. So the radiologists that had the highest diagnosis rate, you know, who diagnosed the most cases also were the ones that most often missed it when it actually was there. So the ones that uh, had a lot of uh, diagnoses also had a lot of false negatives. Um, and so, Diagnostic skill, they say, might be particularly important to account for when agents, radiologists, coaches, judges, whatever the word is you want to fill in there, require expertise to match decisions to underlying states. When this expertise uh, likely varies across coaches or radiologists, and uh, when the cost between false negatives and false positives are highly asymm asymmetric. So what they found was that what these radiologists would do is they would just overdiagnose in fear 
that they might miss a diagnosis. They would say, oh, this person has pneumonia, this person has pneumonia. But it was really an account of their lack of skill or lower skill when compared to other radiologists. And so variation in skill, they said, can explain 39% in variation of the diagnostic decisions. So the higher skilled radiologist had a lower diagnostic rate, but they had a much higher success rate, meaning they very rarely missed cases of pneumonia on a x-ray. Now, what do we, what does this have anything to do with working as a personal trainer or a strength and conditioning coach? What I tend to find with our beginner coaches, um, as they start on the floor, we have a group of interns now who are getting, finishing up the summer in the next week here is they're very eager to coach everything. They say, Hey, Kevin, uh, should we go fix this? Kevin, should we go fix this? Kevin, should we go fix this? Um, and that reason being is that they are fearful of missing coaching something. One, because they, number one, care about the athlete and they want to make sure they don't get hurt or they think they need assistance or they want to show and demonstrate their value both to the athlete as well as to people like myself or Mike or Steve or Dan or Vinny who might be their um, managers or uh, people that they're answering to at the gym. They're trying to demonstrate value. So their fear of missing coaching something outweighs their ability, outweighs their fear of accidentally misdiagnosing something. But what I find is that they overcoach and maybe they actually miss something when it needs to be coached. Um, and so I think it speaks to this uh, discussion of skill and diagnosis lends itself beyond this discussion of radiology and also applies itself to coaching in the gym or working as a clinician as something like a physical therapist or anywhere where you have to look at movement. You'll find as you gain experience in this field, you probably coach and react less than you did early on. I can think to back when I was a younger coach, I always was coaching everything. Hey, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. I got to fix this. And still I'll be very active on the floor, but I'm much, my coach's eye is much sharper and I'm much more likely to let something go and let the athlete figure it out and also understand that it might not be a big problem um, and that there's room for the athlete to learn and learn a movement. They're probably not going to get injured as long as the load or volume, intensity, whatever is not that high. Um, and in a diagnosis, you know, or in a, an assessment, Realizing that, no, we might not need to fix that yet. Um, and that there's time to figure it out. Um, and so, you know, looking at this study, you might read it and think like, oh, God, I, it's kind of boring, to be honest. Um, but the takeaway, I think, was that, you know, skill in, in that is for coaches and physical therapists is typically experience um, in, in seeing a lot of people move is going to impact how often you diagnose something and also how often you don't miss diagnoses because when you see something that needs to be fixed, you actually know it as opposed to trying to fix everything um, and actually missing the thing that might be right there in front of you. And so um, I would t tell you to look at the study. It's pretty interesting. Again, I'll put the link to it in the show notes so you can pick it up and read it on your own um, as I found it very interesting. Um, like I said, Hopefully, Brendan will be back 
in the next few weeks uh, as he gets through football preseason. His schedule should return to normalcy. But in the meantime, I have a number of questions in the mailbag. I have a few special topics. I have another couple of great interviews coming up in the next couple weeks that I think you're going to love um, with some, some familiar faces and friends here in the studio. Um, as far as events that we have coming up on the horizon here, um, I know that I'm going to be at Perform Better August 26th through 28th and Perform Better Rhode Island and Providence, Rhode Island. I'm going to be speaking, giving my presentation called The Trainer's Guide to Coaching the Low Back Pain Client. And it's going to be an overview as a fitness professional specifically, how to work with people who come in with pain and have back pain. Um, it's a reality. If you're going to be working in the fitness space, we know that prevalence of low back pain is over 90% um, in some areas. It's estimated in that you're going to have to understand how to work with these people and how to work as a team with other healthcare practitioners. And I'm going to give you my overview on how I go about that every day at Mike Bullock Strength and Conditioning. Um, there's going to be a ton of great speakers there. They're finally getting back to live events. Um, so I really encourage you, if you haven't signed up, there's no better deal in fitness than the Perform Better three-day summits. Uh, you get three full days of speakers. There's also free beer on Friday nights at the social. Can't really beat that. So I highly, highly encourage you to go and check that out. I'm also going to be traveling and teaching a few CFSC courses in Croatia. Uh, first weekend in September. Third weekend in September, I will be in Milan, Italy. Um, and then we have a ton of events in the United States coming up August, September, October, November. Head to certifiedfsc.com and see those. Um, one thing um, we haven't been doing in Brendan's absence is talking about the book of the week. And you know what? I want to bring that back even in this solo episode um, this week. So have a book that I would highly recommend. Actually, I don't have the copy here. It's up on my coffee table, but I'll put a link to this as well. Um, this is a non-fitness book, but if you are into um, non-fiction, uh, I have a book by author Patrick Radden Keefe, who also wrote the book uh, Empire of Pain, which is all about the Sackler dynasty, uh, the Sackler family, um, who is behind Purdue Pharma and the Oxycontin tragedies, um, and the book Say Nothing, which is also about um, the IRA and the history of the IRA in Ireland. And, um, but his current book that just came out, is called rogues, um, which is the true story of grifters, killers, rebels, and crooks. And it's a number of short stories about crimes, um, and different, um, true crime investigations. So if you're one of those people who really loves to dig into, uh, stuff on Netflix, like murder documentaries or true crime documentaries, you will absolutely love this book. It's a bunch of short stories. So you could bang out a story a day, uh, pretty much. You'll get through it really quickly. He's a great writer. Uh, so again, that's rogues, true stories of grifters, killers, rebels, and crooks. And I would highly recommend looking into this book. Uh, been one of my favorite ones. I flew through it in about a week or so. Um, so go check that one out. So thank you for listening to episode 20 here, another solo cast in the books, and I'll hear you next time.